Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. Julie, do you have any uh, magical objects with you today? Any good luck charms? Any personal items of uh, importance? Nope. I was thinking about this. Yeah. I'm not really into the uh, sort of magical thinking lucky items, I have to say. Yeah? Yeah. Wait, hold up your hands. Do you have any rings on? Oh, you don't have any rings on. Uh, look, oh, nothing. Wow. Nothing, huh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe I have my lucky underwear on. Maybe I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you? Um, well, I mean, I not mean, underwear. No, well, I mean, nothing. Uh, let's see, what do I have on me? Right now, I just ha- I have my wedding ring. And I do there's so there's a certain amount of uh, magical thinking involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, do I have any? Am- no, I don't have any amulets on me right now. But I in the past I've I've certainly fallen into the habit of of using them. I think I've talked about this before. Uh, I previously had a Ganesha, you know, remover the, of obstacles, remover of obstacles, the uh, the, the Hindu god that uh, is uh, that has uh, the you know the elephant appearance. Uh, and also I had featured on The Simpsons in a hilarious episode. Yes, yes, also also. Uh, made fun of there, uh, but I would carry it around because you know remover of obstacles and you know all this various ties into ties into creativity and all, mm-hmm. and uh, so I would carry that in my pocket. And then eventually I lost it, like it crawled out in the washing machine or something and left me. And and so I've always felt I, I felt kind of bad. I'm like, where did Ganesha go? Did Ganesha abandon me? And then and then I found Ganesha, put him back in, mm-hmm. and then and then he disappeared again and hasn't come back. And. And also in the past, I'll occasionally like pick up a rock, like if I'm at the beach and I'm having a particularly good day, I'll pick up that rock and take it with me, and that'll end up in my pocket for maybe a year or so, um, you know, because that kind of comes to symbolize like a nice memory, and so I can take it out and I can sort of think back to that time. So what I'm hearing is that you have various kinds of woobies. Woobies? Woobies, yeah. What? Security blankets. Oh, yes. Yeah, I guess they are. To a certain extent, security blankets. I mean, they're not, you know, apples to apples, but there is this sort of warm and fuzzy thing that you're trying to evoke with with an object, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's weird for me because, like, when I'm if I'm holding a Ganesha, I don't actually think that I'm using this as a totem to to get in touch with some sort of a god. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm, it's not like a literal interpretation of the amulet, but there is a certain amount of positive thinking that I, that comes with having it. And I've also wondered a lot of times when I'm passing by my own desk or coworkers' desks or seeing somebody's desk on, on TV where they have action figures, mm-hmm. uh, typically like a dude's desk, you know, have various action figures. And I wondered to what extent are modern action figures kind of uh, akin to the amulets of old? You know, like today we don't have a pantheon of gods to really call upon for the most part. But instead, we have all these various pop culture icons and cartoon characters that represent various things, at least on like a subconscious level, and we keep them around to draw strength from them. You haven't found the Pantheon Room? The HSW Pantheon Room? No. Do we have one? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but, but, it's next know, to the, the room with the, the black toilet and the black sink. Yeah? Yeah. The superhero bathroom. Okay. Well, see, I've been missing that. But if you if you pass by my desk, you pass by, like, Jonathan Strickland's desk, you mm-hmm. pass by Izzy's uh, office, you'll see little little figures, you know? So I wonder yeah. to what extent. I mean, and obviously, they're on our desk. They're in our workspace. They're in our work environment informing, you know, our our relationship with our with our work with with what we're trying to do with and, and representing a little bit of who we are so to what extent are those becoming 
deities. I don't know. Well, okay, so that's what we're going to try to get to the bottom of today. We're going to look at objects, our relationship to objects, and we're going to try to figure out uh, how much of this has to do with our own uh, ability to acquire things and whether or not this acquisitiveness is natural to us. And then we're going to look a little bit at uh, compulsive hoarding, too. When it comes to materialism, it is really a distinctive human trait for the most part, especially when you look at its more outrageous examples. Uh, the one that I was really partial to was the one uh, brought up by Steve Taylor in his article, uh, The Madness of Materialism, uh, which is uh, just a great short little article. But he, he mentions gold, um, especially the uh, um, like European colonists' love of gold and, uh, and their clashes with, uh, with uh, Native peoples in the Americas. Uh, there, there's one example that he brings up where an Indian chief in Cuba uh, learned that the Spanish sailors were about to attack his land, mm-hmm. so he actually prays to the spirit of the gold to, for, for aid. Like they become, they're trying to figure out why are these, why are these, uh, these, these people so into gold, this, this shiny rock from the ground. They must have some sort of, they must believe it's a god. They mm-hmm. must believe that it, is, that it has supernatural powers. Because otherwise, why would you go to such ridiculous ends? Why would you wage all this bloodshed uh, just to get it? Right, because otherwise it's like, well, you guys are just acting like ferrets going after something shiny. So surely this piece of gold has something to it. And he prayed to it, right? And uh, Didn't work. Didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Because as as, as he points out in this article, as Steve Taylor points out, a certain amount of hoarding of of, of resources makes evolutionary sense. You know, we've talked before, in in the wild there are certain things that are scarce. I mean, food itself is going to be scarce uh, to, to varying degrees. And so to whatever degree we can plan ahead that we can stockpile it, mm-hmm. the better off we'll be. If that means burying nuts in the yard, if that means, uh, uh, you know, finding something that is that is more rare in nature, like sugar, and being able to store that away, like like all that makes sense. Firewood, I mean, there are things that are that are part of our survival that that, that makes sense when we're, we're hoarding it. Well, it makes sense, I think, to a culture that is uh, settled. But if you look back at early man, um, and particularly the, the fact that early man was a nomadic species, mm-hmm. um, then you know that hoarding or stockpiling just really wasn't convenient. That's right. I mean, yeah, if you're always on the mood move, if you uh, even if you have kind of like cyclical uh, uh, patterns to your uh, to your movement, and you know, going from you know north to south depending on, uh, on what the weather's doing, uh, yeah, you're not going to be able to carry all of this with you. You could maybe stockpile some of it, but you're not going to carry it all on your back. Yeah, so there's this big question mark. Like, is this really genetic? Is this something that's natural to humans, this impulse to buy and possess things? Or is it something that really is uh, more symptomatic of modern man, particularly in, from the 19th century on, right, yeah. when things became much easier to produce uh, to produce cheaply and then to acquire cheaply? Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to stockpiling things that are important, I mean, we, when, once we get out of this uh this is a transitory nature of culture, and we get into uh, into actually settling in areas and growing food. I mean, being able to stockpile food. I mean, that's part and partial to a lot of our cultural growth as as a, as a species. Our ability to put food away, have more food than we need, and then specialize our roles within a community. But what about just buying lots of plastic things, right, yeah. and putting them in a storage unit? And then that storage unit being auctioned off in, in a show called Storage Wars or something like that, right? Yeah, because yeah, then it's, it seems like we're definitely getting into pathological area. We're getting into right. an area where it is just it is a sickness. It is a, some a natural instinct that has been perverted. Because even 
even though the uh, you know the native peoples of the Americas couldn't understand the lust for gold, if you put gold within the context of of, of wealth, and then wealth equals power, power, wealth equals comfort, wealth equals food, then I can see the cognitive steps you know necessary to think I got to have all the gold. <laughs> right, because I have to possess base. the symbol of it, which yeah. is probably a large part of why we do have this such a, such a high degree of acquisitiveness, right? Like mm-hmm. of wanting to get acquire everything. Um, but you know, the question is, is it genetic? Well, there was a study by Justine Giddens, Julie Shermer, and Philip Vernon from the University of Western Ontario, and they wanted to know how much of it was environmental, how much of it was genetic. So of course, they turned to twins. They recruited two hundred and forty pairs of twins. Um, identical and fraternal. And they they looked at the benchmark of individual differences, um, personality, values, happiness, and we know about 45% of those traits are heritable, right? Mm -hmm. So to the surprise of these researchers, they found that individual differences in materialism were almost entirely attributed to environmental factors and not a genetic thing going on here. Okay. So that kind of makes sense, right? And, And that actually makes sense to me in the context of hoarding. Because, yes, uh, hoarding does have some pathological brain disorder elements to it, but a lot of the triggers for hoarding are environmental. So, um, you know, if you had a loved one who recently passed away or something that was life-changing, uh-huh. that can sort of flip the switch in hoarding behavior. And when I talk about hoarding behavior, I'm talking about an excessive collection of objects. This is like one of those things where it's like, I must keep every newspaper that has ever come out. And it's not just keep them, but like if you were to be separated from those newspapers, you would suffer. Yeah. You, would, you, you would feel pain. You would you would be confused. You'd have an inability to really make clear-headed decisions about the sort of stuff in your life. Yeah. And you've seen one of these shows. To me, that's enough. Because, the hoarding shows. Yeah, because yeah. it can be a bit much to take in. It can be, I mean, they're, they're kind of depressing. Uh, but it, but I I think I saw one once where it was like food items and it wasn't in a sense that like I need to save all the sweet potatoes because I love sweet potatoes and I need need to eat these sweet potatoes later but it would be like oh this sweet potato looked really good this is a really cool looking sweet potato and like this weird emotional attachment to the sweet potato and then it must be kept even though it's rotting in the refrigerator. Yeah, well, it turns out that uh, people who have hoarding behavior um, or hoarding disorder. They actually have a part of their brain, um, this is the anterior cingular cortex, this part of their brain is actually not behaving the same way as quote-unquote normal people mm-hmm. uh, because that is the part of the brain that's actually governing your decisions. And, and your rest- restraint, is that also playing um, some Some impulse control, yeah. yeah. Uh, but primarily it's the decision-making. And so if you take people who have the hoarding disorder and you look at them in MRI scans mm-hmm. when they are considering whether or not to part from an object that they own, You'll see that you'll see the fuzzy nature going on there. So you know that it is um, it is a brain disorder. It is this this part of their brain that is saying, I, I just don't know what to do here. Yeah. And so it's not just like, oh, OK, I, I need to have everything in the world or there's some sort of gluttonous, you know, void that they're trying to fill. It really is coming from the decisions that their their brain circuitry is making. And um, this is I thought this was really interesting when I found out about it. Um Hoarding behavior actually has some connection or a lot of connection to narcissism. Hmm. So you think about narcissism and you think about vanity. Yeah, you think about you know, narcissus, you think about the yeah. reflection in the pool, captivated by one's appearance. But it really is sort of a coping mechanism. And uh, I believe it was Dr. Rebecca Beaton. She explained this to me a couple of years ago when I interviewed her um, about hoarding. She told me that 
kids who are feeling abandoned from their parents or they don't have a significant relationship with a parent or really any sort of guardian. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're not getting that emotional connection or even sort of the touch, the hug or any of that. Uh, They begin to turn inward and they begin to become narcissists because they have to find self-comfort from themselves. And some of that gets attributed to objects. So then they begin to collect objects as this part of comfort. Okay. And that's where you see the behavior played out. And, of course, this brings to mind uh, the Peanuts character, Linus. Oh, and right, his, And yeah. his blanket, right? His, his wooby. Com- his his wooby? Mm-hmm. Yeah, his, uh, his comfort blanket, his, uh, or if you want to get into the, the more technical terms, his comfort object, his transitional object, mm-hmm. um, which is something you see with a lot, a lot of kids. I mean, it's, um, let's see, did I have, no, my, now my sister definitely had a blanket. Uh, called Blanky, and uh, and it got to the point where they ended up like cutting off the edge of yeah. Blanky so that she could continue to carry Blanky around with her. And I think she may still have. I think she still keeps Blanky around. Well, you know, my daughter's four, mm-hmm. and the same thing has happened to her blanket. She calls it Blanky's Blanky. Who's, wait, now I'm confused. The, the part that came off oh. that she carries around is called Blanky's Blanky. So it's the blank, like the shard of Blanky. It's mm-hmm. all right. It's like a. Like it's kind of like a, a, a religious artifact? Kind of. Uh, and she hides okay. it in her bed and she's really freaky about it. Like <laughs> we can't find it. It's like, blank is blanking. Well, I mean, it, it, to an uninformed uh, observer, it could seem a little freaky because it's like, because yeah. it is kind of borderline religious obsession, it may seem like. In fact, if you go back to the 1940s, uh, attachment to a special object uh, by a child was regarded as just pathological behavior. It was mm-hmm. just a case of childhood fetish uh, reflecting something askew in the mother-child relationship. Like, yeah, like that, you must be doing something wrong because your kid has this gross <laughs> scrap of a blanket that they're carrying around. I think it's interesting that they, they look at it as a fetish, particularly mm-hmm. if you kind of take a wide-angle view of that period anyway, where you see a lot of this f- the ideas of fetish or yeah. fetishism coming out. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't until the 50s, right, when they started to say, you know what, this is actually a normal thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. People like uh, D.W. Uh, Wincott started defining these as, as normal and necessary and as a, a transitional experience, a key step in an infant's ability to distinguish this inner subjective world uh, from the outside reality. So, you know, through the, even through the 70s and 80s, there was still this sort of, people were still clinging to this old notion that it's, there's something wrong, that the kid has some, you know, some anxiety problems or something, and that's why they're, they're holding on to it. But, but really the, um, the, the academic understanding of it was, was pretty much in place. Yeah, because they began to understand that this could really help um, allay some of the fears, um, some of the anxieties that children have. Of course they have them, because remember, they have an entirely new view of life. Mm-hmm. So they have to categorize every loud sound, every image, and try to make sense of it. Is it a threat? Is it not a threat? And so this transitional object really does help, because it is sort of like the, the stand-in for you know a parental unit or something else. There's a study by G.J. Yabara, R.H. Passman, and C. Eisenberg, and they found that during a routine third-year pediatric examination, the security object enhanced rapport with the examining nurse, and then children attached to a blanket who were allowed access to it were rated as less distressed, and they experienced less physiological stress. Um, and that is evidenced by the heart rate and the systolic blood pressure. So this is in contrast to kids who are undergoing medical evalua- evaluation without their woobies, really. Yeah. And certainly these woobies, um, as you said, they can end up uh, becoming like an, an important parenting tool, I understand, as well. I mean, if you if you you use it wisely, right? I mean, it's I guess it's powerful stuff to play with. But I was reading about how, you know, a parent can, can use it to their advantage. You know, a kid needs the wooby to 
to remain comfortable in a position sure. time when the, the mother's away? I think it's really important to, um, like around age one and so on and so forth, when when they start to feel the separation anxiety, as you mm-hmm. say, like leaving the house or even just sleeping at night. I think yeah. having something to grab onto is really important. I, one of the interesting things about studying uh, transitional objects is that um, is that there's a, ultimately a kind of a lack of uniformity in the definition of it and also uh, the cultural significance of mm-hmm. it. Like some of the cultural stats are pretty interesting. Like um, the United States, 60% of children have at least a mild degree of attachment to some sort of soft, inanimate object. And I think looking back, I did have, I, I had a stuffed rhinoceros named Wrenchy that I was, Wrenchy. that had an, an attachment to. <laughs> Um, but but I don't know. Then you're getting into like stuffed animals. You're getting into a whole different area because those have personalities. I don't know. Does Blanky or does Blanky's Blanky have a personality? Do you think? Well, sometimes Blanky's Blanky gets in yeah. trouble or does things like takes all the toilet paper off the toilet roll or oh. something like that. But um, generally, I think that's just general scoundrelness right now. Well, okay. So anyway, 60 percent of children in the U.S. Uh, have some sort of mild degree. Thirty-two percent exhibit strong attachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, if you look at incidences of attachment uh, in the Netherlands, in New Zealand, and Sweden, that's com- that's comparable to the United States. Korean children have substantially fewer attachments to blankets, down to eighteen uh, percent, that compared to American children. Uh, but in Korean-born children living in the United States, to play uh, an intermediate uh, percentage of thirty-four percent. Five percent of rural Italian children have transitional objects, compared to thirty-one percent of uh, urban Italians, and it, it goes as far as sixty-two uh, percent of foreign children living in Rome. So I don't know. You just see the the stats, I guess, kind of skewing towards urban areas. Yeah, as we say, it's interesting to see that it can be, you know, within one country, you could have such a mm-hmm. so many different variables there. And- oh, but in uh, in London, uh, just sixteen percent. Of children have a special security object, and there, then that's London. So there goes the uh, the urban argument. See, it's just it's it's hard to find the uh, exactly what's going on. Uh, there's just so many cultural factors to to look at there. I guess. Well, and you have to wonder too if, if part of that is just to say like that's not as accepted, and therefore maybe mm-hmm. in that culture, it's not as encouraged or it's not maybe as prominent. People don't see it as much. Yeah, or maybe there's less of a culture of these are my objects and these are your objects and it's more these are our objects, you know? Some of this had to do with memory too, uh, right? Like they mm-hmm. they would go back and say, oh, did I have an object that I was connected to? And, and so they're collecting some of this data from faulty memory where people are saying yes or no and they couldn't exactly remember. I also wanted to point out too that uh, you know, a, a transitional object is very different from a pacifier. And, of course, a pacifier is something that's used to self-soothe in babies. Right. But I kind of think of it as gum for babies. You know, it's an activity to to try to help them with their eventual um, eating skills, mm-hmm. uh, their swallowing skills. And it kind of helps keep them occupied if they're hungry and you're trying to prepare a bottle or something like that. But it is very different in terms of comfort. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will get into the world of magical thinking, lucky charms, and something called the Ikea Factor. Okay, so we're back. Yeah, and we're uh, going to get into the realm of magical thinking. This is territory that we've we've moved through many times before, but it, it continues to, to be important because it really does deal with how we think about the world uh, and uh, versus how the world really is. I mean, we magical thinking, of course, is uh, the belief that an object, action, or circumstance not logically related to a course of events can influence its outcome. So in magical thinking, you get into all these ideas of uh, 
of everything from a haunted house, the idea that, oh, something bad happened here, so now something is bad with the house. You know, mm-hmm. like the idea that, 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 that an event can affect the, the physical object. Or even like mere mementos. Uh, I mean, I, I've mentioned uh, my father's watch before. You know, mm-hmm. like obviously that's, that's uh, something that has significance to me. And there's a certain amount of magical thinking involved there. Um, you know, even if it's at a subconscious level, even if I'm not thinking, oh, this, this has the spirit of my dad in it, I, I think, oh, that's, that is, that was his watch and there is some sense of him about it. Mm-hmm. So magical thinking, Kind of, uh, you know, is intertwined in all our lives, uh, to varying degrees, you know, be it conscious or subconscious. One of the more, more conscious ways, of course, is with the idea of a lucky charm. Yeah, and, uh, there's something called apophenia, and that is seeing patterns where there are none. And that is, uh, yes. a, a little mm-hmm. bit of the, the soup base to magical thinking, right? Because again, if you, Let's say you're wearing something and, and something great happens. You think, oh, those are those lucky socks. I must wear them every time that I have to do this certain challenge. Yeah. And you begin to, to um, make this uh, causal connection. But then there's always that difference between, oh, I've got a big interview. I'm going to wear those lucky socks of mine. There's that. And then there's, these are my lucky socks. I must wear them every day and they must never be washed. Or they must be washed exactly eight times to contain their, their magic. You know, I mean, <laughs> there's a line between... Um, just sort of helpful magical thinking and uh, and 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 helpful lucky charm belief to uh, and then there's then there's a whole realm of uh, pathology. Well, that gets a little well. OCD in a way, yeah. right? It's uh, called adventitious reinforcing, and that is making that connection and then keep you know doing whatever that ritual is over and over again, so that you can hopefully you know evoke those spirits of magic to help you in your quest. So, has anyone studied lucky charms? Of course, the they cereal? have. Yeah, well, not the cereal. The, the, the cereal, that's a whole different uh, yeah. kettle of fish. But, uh, but yes, uh, as far as studying uh, the, the effects that Lucky Charms, Lucky Objects have on us, uh, there's a really cool uh, study from the Euro- University of Cologne in 2010. And uh, they started off with just golf. They, uh, they invited uh, these, these test subjects to come and, uh, and see how many of 10 putts they could make uh, from the same location. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the experimenters handed them a golf b- uh, ball, they would uh, they would s- sometimes just give them the ball and say, "Hey, everyone's used this ball so far. You know, no big deal. Here's a golf ball. Why don't you hit it and see if it'll go in that hole over there?" And then sometimes they said, "Hey, this ball, uh, this must be a lucky ball. This one's this one's really worked well for people." Mm-hmm. And then they um, they they analyzed it. They let, they let everyone play a little golf, see what happened. And the mere suggestion that the ball was lucky significantly influenced performance, causing participants to make uh, almost two more putts on average. See, this is where, like, when David Eagleman says, like, we don't have any free will, I began to really sort of say, you know, he might be onto something. Because mm-hmm. the mere suggestion that it's lucky would actually have some sort of um, bearing on your performance. That's crazy, you know? It is, yeah. So, of course, they weren't going to stop just there. Because no. generally, if you have a scientific uh, experiment, if you have a, a study going on, and it begins and ends with people just playing golf one afternoon, you know, that's probably not enough. You need to push it a little uh, a little further. Sure, sure. Yeah. So uh, what they did is they had uh, test subjects come in, and they had them uh, them bring uh, lucky artifacts with them, you know, be it their, I don't know, their old blankie or their, you know, like me. I You know, I, I forgot about this. I always bring this... Uh, Triceratops uh, squeeze toy into the uh, the office with me. It's true. Yeah, and I don't think of it as a lucky charm. I think of it more as like something to occupy my hand when I'm feeling kind of uh, 
fumbly. But, but you um, don't podcast without it. I don't podcast without it. So there's a certain amount of magical uh, thinking involved there, a uh, certain amount of good luck uh, charm going on with that Triceratops. So anyway, they invited people to bring in their Triceratops toys, their their lucky uh, you know four-leaf clovers, what have you, and uh, and then they started the tests. They assigned them to either a condition where they would be performing a task in the presence of their charm or in absence of their charm. And... Uh, and then uh, the participants rated their perceived level of self-efficiency and then completed a memory task that was essentially uh, uh, a variant of the, 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 you know, the classic card game concentration. So uh, psychologist Lisa Damish, she found that those people who had their lucky charms, they were doing a couple of things here okay. to improve their performance. Because really, it does pr- uh, improve your performance, Yeah, that was right? the thing. They found, once again, if they had their lucky uh, charms on hand, they did better. Yes, they were setting loftier goals from, for themselves, and then they were exhibiting increased persistence, right? They were they uh, did not give up as easily because they felt bolstered by these lucky charms. Yeah. It's it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's the idea that, the, so here's the Triceratops squishy in my hand, and bringing it in, I'm thinking, well, I've got the Triceratops with me. I'm going to, you know, I'm not just going to go for normal. I'm going to shoot for higher because I've got this, I've got the power up in my hand. Well, and then so, I'm going to stick to it more because 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 my I'm focusing my attention. I have the 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 symbol of my uh, my commitment with me as well. Well, here's where the funhouse mirror shatters. If you are aware of this effect, then supposedly this no longer works anymore. That's, if you become conscious that you are attributing magical qualities to an object, then it supposedly is not going to be effective. You know, and I don't really, I don't really buy that part of the study. You don't. Well, I, I think it depends. I think that this depends on the individual, because for my own part, I find myself able to drift in and out of believing in things, mm-hmm. depending on what my day-to-day outlook is, and depending on you know how I want to view the world. Like I find myself able to, to a certain extent, you know, engage in the belief that an object might have some sort of uh, you know luck or believe in some varying levels of, of spirituality depending on, on how I'm viewing the day. So I can imagine somebody, you know, logically knowing that something is just a piece of metal, but then still buying into it enough to get that effect out of it. Well, I think that's because you have a creative fiction twisted mind that's been trained that way. So you can, I think, dive into magical thinking very easily. Yeah. Well, well, but, and yeah. then still... Be hanging out with reality. Yeah, but I don't. Nice. I mean, I'm not unique in that. In that. That. That aspect. No, no. I, I mean, a lot of people, people can do that. Like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I think the study's fascinating, though. I do, I do kind of disagree on that part um, about the idea that just merely by listening to this podcast, we have deactivated all of your lucky charms out there. I mean, some of you, if you're the right kind of person, then we just totally zapped all of your um, your magic doodads. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's change the subject and, and close this podcast out on Ikea, because Ikea, what is this but the uh, the iconic symbol of all objects known to man that can be acquired by man, right? Right. And, of course, the, the, the thing we always come back to with Ikea, anytime we're talking about Ikea, anytime we're, we're thinking about Ikea, and I'm not talking about on the podcast, but just in general, all of us, is um, the the assembly of these items? They come with the really well des- well designed um, graphically uh, instructions, and you bring them home and you try to make sense out of them, and then you take one or two, three or four goes at assembling it correctly. Now, um, Generally, with some there's a little ba- it's like going through a maze because you end up yeah. hitting a dead corner, and then you realize, oh, I already used those screws in the wrong spot. 
let's see if they can actually be removed without destroying the product. Is that little, is it the, the, the L, is that a Allen wrench? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That thing is ridiculous to me because you have this, you have all these pieces in front of you and then you have this tiny little Allen wrench that's supposed to do the job. Well, you can get a screwdriver with the Allen wrench. Well, power that's... tools always come out. That's the joke of it, right? Yeah. And I feel like the, uh, the little man that is, yeah. <laughs> That is the symbol of the person that's supposed to be you is overly comical, too. And it's sort of like this commentary on the whole process. I think he's supposed to be kind of disarming as well when you reach the, that frustration point with see, it. See, I, th- I see his visage as being mocking. <laughs> he's laughing at you. He's, 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 you're just sitting in the, the living room floor, just surrounded by half-assembled furniture. Yeah. 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 Beating away. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have, there have been times when I've been uh, assembling IKEA furniture. And I love IKEA furniture. But there have been times when I've been assembling it where I've just about lost my mind. Well, see, I think that is what plays into this whole idea of this IKEA effect, right? Right. And this is the idea. Ultimately, it's the idea that if we build something ourselves, even if it's crap, we care more about it. And we've all encountered this with people. You know, it's anybody that that knows somebody who engages in a bit of uh, of art, uh, a bit of creative uh, uh, endeavor, but be it be it a be it somebody who's really good at it or, you know, someone who's new to, to the practice, there's a tendency to to love your own work even when it's not good. Well, I mean, you see this in fiction writing a lot, yeah. right? When you're going through the editing process is that, what was it the term, kill your children? You don't want to do it. Kill you your don't, darlings. Kill your darlings. You don't want to, to this is your creation um, and it doesn't fit in and it doesn't really even matter to the plot line anymore, but it's very hard to get rid of those things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's why you need an outsider to come in and look at your stuff. That's the beauty of the editor. Um, you know, that's why, you know, I have Allison Loudermilk around to edit my work for the website because otherwise stuff would remain in there that really needs to be cut. You need, you need a hard, cruel Loudermilk. Um, <laughs> she is not cruel. <laughs> to come in and, and, and take out uh, all the unimportant organs. Just rip them right out of the body. Yeah, you do need someone putting in comments next to your work saying, hey, what's up with this? Yeah. Um, but see, this is really interesting about the Ikea effect is that, um, you know, in the NPR story about this called Why You Left That Ikea Table, Even If It's Crooked, um, they're saying that people don't have this editor coming in. And you see this in companies. You see people getting really tied to this idea of what what a product is or what it is that they're making. And sometimes it's two years in the making. Yeah, you're putting just loads of time and energy into it, and you're just, you're just, you're in the jungle with it. You you're know? in the jungle, and then someone from the outside comes in and goes, mm, it's crooked. Yeah. You know, um, and that you need that. You need, you need that sort of fresh perspective. So that's helpful. I mean, we're, we've kind of transitioned away from objects more into, um, philosophy here, but hey, I mean, isn't that what objects are doing in the first place? They're just metaphors for us, really. Yeah. So the, the study was big on stressing that, that uh, building your own stuff boosts your feeling of pride and confidence, uh, signals to others that you are competent, which I, I think is, is good as well, and reminds me of that recent uh, Portlandia sketch. Did you see this with the, the dude who builds his own furniture? No, I didn't see that one. He's, he's like the, the, all the women want to date him and marry him and make them <laughs> make make him their own because they learn oh he makes his own furniture right you know because like it's you know it's just the, the perfect thing right uh but then they find out that he makes really crappy furniture and, but he just doesn't realize it so so it, it, it kind of fits in, in with what we're talking about but the, the third thing that they found in the study that was interesting was that uh and this is direct quote from the study threatening consumers sense of self increases their propensity to make things themselves so the idea too, the idea here that, that, that uh, the author talks about in this, this article is that 
theoretically, if you were to provide a visitor to IKEA mm-hmm. with a really difficult math problem, right? To you know to really bust them down a few chops and make them uh, make them feel kind of stupid, then let them into IKEA. They're going to be even more into the idea of buying something and, and building it themselves. So they can make good again. So yeah, because they, yeah. they, their ego has been taken down a couple notches, and then if they can just assemble something, they can regain that. Yeah, yeah. Is that I the mean, idea? I think so because it's. I mean, it's kind of like anything. You know, whenever you're logged in a in a process that is just seemingly never ending, that you don't really feel like there's a sense of completion, or you have one of those days where you work on 18 different things and finish none of them. Mm-hmm. Like what you really want to do is is nail something. You want to be, say, I went home and I made a grilled cheese from start to finish, and then I ate it. Case closed. Close that loop. Well, that would get you a lot of ladies. Yeah. Hey, he makes cheese. He makes cheese, yeah. <laughs> well, not from start to finish, not making your own bread and cheese. So that would be impressive as well. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, this is what uh, right the author was saying, is that maybe IKEA could start to game their customers to their advantage and give them these math problems, or just put up big placards that say, like, you know, you're awful and lousy. Put some furniture together and you'll feel better. Yeah. I mean, some people love it. I know people that are just, just in love with the idea of putting together furniture. Well, IKEA Hacker is a great website oh, to yeah, see yeah, what yeah. people do to, to sort of change the, um, the, or to make it more unique or, you know, try to game the furniture to have, an, have another purpose. I've been saying for a while that IKEA needs to do like a game show where, and teams of uh, of IKEA hackers have to like compete against each other, I and mean, maybe they're having to assemble uh, furniture in, in weird places, like you know, in a hot air balloon or on the subway. But my boy, I think you got something there. Yeah, yeah. I don't, did that sound like 1940s? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Right. So there you go, objects. Um, a little insight into why we surround ourselves with so much stuff, why it's so important. And uh, I was really. I was really interested in you know we were talking about that that space that 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 your mind occupies that that moment when you're holding something in your hand and trying to decide whether you can part with it and throw it away or if it has value that and needs to be held and and and, and maintained like that that to me is a very interesting frame of mind um, to to occupy I mean we've all been there yeah and uh, and I and and we all kind of skew different ways, I think, when, when faced with that uh, situation. Some of us will just throw stuff away at the drop of a hat. My, my wife is one, and, and she's been a good influence on me in, in, in making me more susceptible to getting rid of things instead of keeping them around needlessly until you just have boxes of notes and stuff. Yeah, you know, um, if I'm in a store, which I, I don't really shop that much, but if I'm in a store and I see something I fancy, I actually will carry it around for about 15 minutes mm-hmm. to see whether or not I actually want it. And nine out of ten times, I put it back. That's a, that's a good way of doing it. I found myself doing that sometimes when there's like a wait, you know? Yeah. You're having to wait in line to, to check out, and you have the object in your hand, and you really start to think about what you're doing and yeah. decide, no, I, I don't know that I really need that. And, of course, therein lies the danger of, of online shopping. Uh, immediate. Yeah. Yep. So, hey, what we would love to hear from everybody about this, about your thoughts on your relationships with objects, because we, we all have them. Um, and I'd love to hear some stories, love to hear some, some new insight on blankies that you were fond of as a child, other stranger things that you attached to as a, as a child, uh, things that you're still attached to as an adult, the uh, various deities that may occupy your work desk, be they actual Hindu gods or action figures. I have both on mine, so I no, no judgment. Uh, let us know what, what you think. We'd love to hear from you at uh, our Facebook account, 
at our Tumblr account. On both of those, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We also have a Twitter account where our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 